Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. I am Ikrashi Gupta Chima, your host for the New Books Network in Gender Studies. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Amina Yukain to talk about our book, Gender, Sexuality, and Feminism in Pakistani Urdu Writing, published by Anthem Press in March 2022. Dr. Amina Yukain is an Associate Professor in World Literatures and Publishing at Exeter University. Her research is interdisciplinary and engages with contemporary contexts of Muslim life, as well as the politics of culture in Pakistan, where she grew up. She is co-author with Peter Mori of Framing Muslims, Stereotyping and Representation After 9-11, and has co-edited Contesting Islamophobia, Media, Politics and Culture, Muslims, Trust and Multiculturalism, New Directions, and Culture, Diaspora and Modernity in Muslim Writing. The Arts and Humanities Research Council funded International Research Network on Framing Muslims and the Research Councils UK funded her work, Muslims, Trust and Cultural Dialogue. She is a book series co-editor for Multicultural Textualities published by Manchester University Press. She is on the advisory board of Anthem Studies in South Asian Literatures, Aesthetics and Culture, the Pakistan Journal of Women's Studies, Journal of Research, Punjab University and the Journal of Commonwealth Literature. She's an associate member of the Postcolonial and Global Literatures Research Group at the Open University. Her book, Gender, Sexuality, and Feminism in Pakistani Urdu Writing, is the first study of its kind that offers a new understanding of prog- progressive women's poetry in Urdu and the legacy of postcolonial politics. It underlines Urdu's linguistic hybridities, the context of the Zanana, reform and rekhti to illustrate how the modernizing impulse under colonial rule impacted women as subjects in textual form. It argues that canonical texts for Sharif women from Miratul Arus to Umrah Janada need to be looked at alongside women's diaries and autobiographies so that we have an overall picture of gendered lives from imaginative fiction, memoirs and biographies. Um, In the late 19th century, ideas of the cosmopolitan and local were in conversation with the secular and sacred across different Indian literatures. With the rise of anti-colonial nationalism, the Indian women's movement gathered force, and those who had previously been confined to the private sphere took their place in public as speaking subjects. The influence of the left, Marxist um, thought and resistance against colonial rule fired the progressive writers movement in the 1930s. The pioneering writer and activist Rashid Jahan was at the helm of the movement, mediating women's voices through a scientific and rational lens. She was succeeded by Isma Chuktai, who like her contemporary Saadat Susan Manto, quoted controversy by writing openly about sexualities and class. With the onset of Hardishin, as the progressive writers were split across two nations, they carried with them the vision of a secular, borderless world. In Pakistan, Urdu became an ideological ground for state formation, and Urdu writers came under state surveillance in the Cold War era. The study picks up the story of progressive women poets in Pakistan to try and understand their response to emerging dominant narratives of nation, community, and gender. How did national politics and an ideological Islamization that was at odds with the secular separation of church and state affect their writing? Despite the disintegration of the progressive writers' movement and the official closure of left in Pakistan, the author argues that an exceptional legacy can be found in the voices of distinctive women poets 
including Adat Jafri, Zahra Nigah, Sara Shigufta, Harween Shakir, Famida Riaz, and Kishwar Nahid. The book demonstrates how they manipulate and appropriate a national language as mother tongue speakers to enunciate a middle ground between the sacred and secular. In doing so, they offer a new aesthetic that is inspired by activism and influenced by feminist philosophy. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Yakin. All right, I think we can uh, start from um, the next question, which just the role of writers and how they were viewing gender. So in colonial India, you know, like there's almost a war going on amongst poets regarding women's education and their place in public and private sphere. And um, one example that has kind of like sustained its relevance in popular imagination is Nazir Ahmed's Akbri and Askri. In this book, you also bring in Hadi Ruswa's Umrao Janata. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Um, yeah, I think this is um, the chapter in which I uh, talk about reform, education, and women, and and in you know my previous answer, I was kind of taking you back to Rechti, right? Um, and this, I think, another thing that was taking place in this um, period was the way that middle class values were. I mean, which is a kind of continuation of the cleansing of Rechti, was how middle class values were being normalized. And um, therefore, you have this really uh, interesting kind of development with the Urdu novel tradition as well, because you have um, the novel as a form, you know, is, is there's a lot of discussion and debate around it in terms of where does it begin or start in, in Urdu and, and Mirza Rusfa's. Uh, Umrajan Ada is, is kind of seen as a foundational text, as is uh, Nazir Ahmed's uh, Miratul Urus mm -hmm. and other publications. So what's quite interesting about these publications um, is, I mean, with Nazir Ahmed's novel, it, it sort of deploys because it also came out in, in sort of shorter versions or uh, before it was compiled into a novel, sort of uh, a holistic kind of novel form. So there are, you know, connections across, for example, the Dastan tradition, other, you know, forms that are part of uh, Urdu literary culture at the time, and also the English novel that is mm -hmm. circulating and present very much through the British colonial presence and the fact that um, this is also um, something that the British are interested in getting more written, more texts that are targeted at women, female readership. So a new kind of readership is being created as well at the same time to offer a different education, you know, and, and we get into that discussion about modernity and colonialism and, you know, what does it mean? Um, and it's quite interesting with with these um, writers because Nazir Ahmed was, um, um, his kind of representation of the two sisters, Akbari and Askari, is, is a 
you know, a moral tale. And it's also when you look at the literary kind of quality of it, I think if you look at the resonance of uh, uh, what I do in, in the book is I look at the voice, at the structure of voice in, in the novel to see how does he manipulate voice. And he often uses, um, ventri ventriloquizes the female voice to narrate the story. But it's also interjected with these conversations with the father and um, the other, you know, with also um, people who are not at the top order of the middle class because you've got the figure of Mama Azmat who works as the person who is really running the household and then how um, Askari takes over from her and models this kind of good um, uh, household uh, who's who knows how to manage the economy of the household and is stronger character actually than her husband so it's um and and she's contrasted with with Akbar, Akbari and I won't you know repeat the story that everybody sort of is familiar with but I think what was quite uh, significant about that book was that it was um it it won a literary prize, which and you know when books win literary prizes, their circulation increases. So there was um, kind of you could say Nazir Ahmed wasn't exactly unaware of the importance of writing a text that was educating women because it also responded to some sort of need by the colonial state to draw out the this to to change the structure of the zanana a bit to kind of draw women out into the public sphere more through this kind of idea of a modern education and you have um and you have you know people like the uh, important figures and and women you know important women uh, who are powerful women like the begums of bhopal who are part of this um structure as well i mean they were of course not uh, directly influencing uh, Nazir Ahmed and um, the later kind of writers. Uh, but with um, Ruswa's representation of um, courtesan culture and the Lucknow idiom, particularly in in the novel Umrajan Ada, it's it's quite interesting because it takes us also to the story of um, well where do we find the first published woman poet whose divan that we have a physical kind of um, evidence or presence of and we find that in the divan of Malaka Bhai Chanda and uh, you know uh, it, the, there's a kind of manuscript a copy of that in, in the British Library here because it was presented to um, the colonial officer at the time uh, by her so it's quite um, different to the kind of story that Nazir Ahmed is telling. So what um, Rusfa is doing is he is actually, you know, depicting the story of the courtesan and her importance and her relationship to uh, Muslim life in that culture in that society at that time but at the same time he's also making her into this pious figure at the end of the novel so that she becomes um 
normalized, you know, into a, a more acceptable way of life that is kind of moving away from courtesan culture. But courtesan culture is, is I mean, I, I'm kind of using that term very um, broadly, but there's so many elements to it in terms of courtesans were not women without power. You know, they had money, they had um, the ability to participate in mushairas and uh, all those sorts of things that uh, women who were pardanashin couldn't. So it's, um, you know, to, to kind of bring her story into the novel form and then to flip it a little bit to try and make it more um, acceptable for a middle class audience, but at the same time make it a life lesson in terms of, well, this is the kind of life that we need to move away from. There are all these layers to the novel and it's a really interesting novel because it uses the form of the ghazal within it as well. So you could... And, and you know he's the biographer he acts as the biographer the storyteller there is the so the way that the story is told there's so many voices within that so you you never know you know who is um whose voice you're hearing and i think um i was interested in looking at those layers in those both those novels in nazir ahmed and um in nazir ahmed's miratul rus and in uh, ruswa's um Umraja and Ada, because I think that, of course, they are novels that have been read quite a lot over the years, and they've been, you know, it's, it's hard to find new things to say about them. But I found also that there was a lot of emphasis um, on um, how they get sort of, they represent a particular type of woman. And I was more interested in actually looking at the quality of, at how the writing was depicting voice and what kind of layering of voice could you find in these novels and how might we read them differently than the way that we've come to read them through these canonizations and the way that they've been um, analyzed over the years. So I just wanted to open that up a little bit more, um, which is what I was doing in that in that kind of chapter. And um, and I think what was um, fascinating for me in looking at that was to see, well, these are the novels that are being used to educate women. And at the same time, you've also got this kind of uh, stuff. And, and Nazir Ahmed is, um, you know, quite secular minded in his thinking. And you've got at the same time this um literature, this religious literature as well, pamphlets and popular sort of type of writing that um, that is coming from Dioband and Molana Shafali Thanvi, and you've got sort of a text like Behishti <clears throat> Zever, which of course is not a novel or, um, and it, you know, it's not the same kind of form. But again, the readership is women. So what all of these kind of texts have in common is that they are targeting women as readers and they're creating a new kind of readership. And in doing so, they're also um, setting out certain um, ideas about what's permissible. <clears throat> and I think, um, yeah, so, so when then um, I found that it was, there were a lot of, I think apprehensions about women writing themselves, you know, that was kind of the thing that was um, really 
becomes more interesting in a novel like Umrah Janada because she has a bit more kind of power in that way. Um, in in that narrative, she's uh, Ruswa does give her a little bit more um, more of a trajectory. So um, yeah, I mean. I think that's the sort of stuff I was thinking about. And I, I don't know, I, I might have lost track of the end of the question. So you might have to bring me back to it. No, I think you answered the question that I was talking about. Um, so that kind of like leads us into this kind of this conversation about like Umrah Janata and uh, women's role and their portrayal. So what is the role and place of women Urdu poets in the progressive writers movement? especially in regards to the conversations about women's sexuality and agency. Mm -hmm. uh, wow, so there's a, I mean, the progressives are, um, the progressive chapter is, so is, is huge. And yeah, my, like, it is the, the book's third chapter turns to that movement, to what were the sexual politics and women's writing, when it came to uh, women's poetry and the progressives. And um, of course, women, progressive women poets were inspired. And, and you know, I, I kind of see the poets like Gishwar and Femida being part, coming out of that sort of um, politics. But of course, earlier on, you have a, a Rashid Jahan or you have an Ismat Juhtai and you have those prose writers who are opening up new ways of writing about sexuality and gender that has not been done before. And I mean, that was also a progressive aim, of course, you know, they wanted to bring literature more to towards realism and reality, and also towards a more, um, you know, to, to a less kind of hallowed outside of a hallowed realm, so that it was accessible for uh, everybody and not just for a few. So um, I think you have to to kind of really get to the influence of the progressive women poets. I think it does take you to the 1970s and the 1980s. Um, and, and I'm looking at that in Pakistan. I haven't sort of looked at it comparatively in India in the post-independence period. But um, you have... Um, poets like Ada Jafri, who were in pre-partition India. And, you know, this this is someone who wasn't um, sent to school, you know, and was had an education at home, which was quite common for a lot of um, Sharif women, Pardhanishin women, that they didn't have, um, that they didn't, you know, weren't allowed to go to school, as it were. Um, and you have uh, before that also, um, I mean, uh, Fatma Hassan has done some very um, important uh, work on Sahida Khatun Sherwania, um, and uh, who used to write as Zekheshin, you know, under a pseudonym, because um, it wasn't considered appropriate for a woman to publish. So you have this um, kind of tension there as well. So the when you get to the real kind of, um, I think, the person who creates a real sensation in terms of those kind of pro progressive um, ideas or um, 
the mission of of kind of breaking the mold, as it were, of what what's there, is I would say somebody like Femi Darias when she publishes a book like a collection like Badandarida, the body torn a lot later, uh, because it is a book which writes about women through the body. You know, she she deliberately kind of focuses on that. Uh, but before that, yeah, you you do have, um, like I said, all these other poets who are writing and they are making contributions in different ways from Zekhesheen to Ada Jafri to Zehra Negar. And Zehra Negar is, is a really interesting figure, you know, in the early years uh, of, of uh, post-independence and Pakistan, because she was a sensation, you know, at 16 years of age. She used to... Um, really um, fill out halls with her performances as a, as a poet. Um, and because she was um, performing the her poetry in Taranum in, in the more kind of traditional way, it was something that was that people were not so used to as well and in, in, in these kind of public spaces. And she, I think, was a bit, is a bit more conventional, is a bit more safe in some of her topics, although she, you know, she's very much influenced by um, progressive themes and she thinks about um, class and she thinks about um, the environment and she thinks about sort of um, many things, but you don't have... Um, the kind of work, for example, that you get with somebody like Isma Chuhtai writing Lihaf, which is a story uh, of, uh, well, of a lesbian encounter or a same-sex encounter, that, however you wish to read it. So I think um, with somebody like uh, Zehra Negar, you have, what you do have success with is that you, that women are more accepted in that public sphere as uh, representatives of um, progressive Urdu poetry. And she is influenced by Fez Ahmed Fez, and she's also tutored by him as well in terms of her developing kind of ethos. And then as a woman writer, you know, she has that um, experience, which many women writers do, or many women do in, in life in general, where she has a family and her career sort of as a poet comes to a halt and then she picks it up again 20 years later. Um, so she is, but she doesn't like test the grounds of sexuality so much as Femida Riaz does. And sexuality is really interesting, even with the progressives, because although they kind of want that aspect of it, but they didn't really like, uh, you know, Isma Chukhtai and Sadat Hassan Manto did face a lot of problems when they wrote stories uh, that were built around sort of a more frank debate or discussion about uh, sexualities and ideas of morality and all, all of these kind of things. And you have, um, of course, you know, court cases and you have um, censorship and and this sort of, I mean, in, in um, it goes back to the kind of the law as well and how 
the colonial state deployed the could deploy the law to um, censor certain texts if they were deemed to um, disturb religious uh, sensitivities or particular types of sensitivities, uh, you know, of, offended where texts were seen to offend people. And, and, you know, we see that to this day, for example, we, you know, recently had uh, the example of um, the very sad, you know, um, happened, what happened with Salman Rushdie recently. So, um, but, you know, that's been something that's been a part of the Urdu literary tradition for a long time as well. And Sufi poets, for example, have always had that um, relationship with apostasy and, you know, a kind of more heterodox way of writing uh, and where orthodox values are challenged and they are kind of seen as a threat to a, a kind a more... Um, you know, a state that's more controlling, a state that wants to have, um, you know, people on its side, as it were, and, and not to have dissent, to have, um, to, to manage that dissent. So I think it's in, when I talk about the progressives and their kind of relationship with sexuality, and I, I sort of get to Femi Darias, I have to really look at all these contexts to see how, these radical transformations that were taking place in women's writing and prose and the change in women's dic diction and poetry, that there's a time lag obviously between the two and how long does it take to evolve. And Ada Jafri is, you know, somebody who was born in 1926 in, in pre-partition India. And, and um, so, um, yeah, you have um, the popularization of certain types of poets and then you have the... Um, reactions to other poets. So for example, Femida's collection, Badandarida, was um, was seen as uh, as an obscene collection, as something that shouldn't, you know, be, uh, that it was really making Urdu something that wasn't what Urdu should be. And, and and that's a you know good question. What what is Urdu? What, what should it be? Should it be controlled to that extent? Should people not be free to write in in it what they wish to write and how they wish to write? And and I think you also get a sense of that with like when I was talking to Zehra Nigar about her work, and one of the things examples. I mean, there were many instances that she talks about that that kind of stay with you. And one of the things that she also mentioned was that she was told by one of her male contemporaries to not I don't know if it was a contemporary actually I think she said it was a senior to not that when she if she would raise her hand in a kind of adab gesture to acknowledge people's appreci appreciation of her poetry it would bring her it would kind of equate her with Khorsan culture and I think that's so interesting you know like you it probably hadn't crossed her mind and she hadn't wow. even thought about it but then this was kind of raised by someone and then, you know, you start to think, should I, shouldn't I, what? And, and you know, when she was reciting poetry in, in a women's college with male poets that they were put in Parda and she was not. So, I mean, you've got all these kind of weird and wonderful things that happen um, in, in this space. And I think uh, what is, quite challenging is that we don't hear those 
women's voices and those women's stories as much and to kind of see how that space has been negotiated. So these women were doing a lot of, you know, backbreaking hard work in meeting those challenges on an everyday life basis. And and you've also got poets like Sarah Shugufta, who, you know, is seen as a poet who comes from the wrong side of the tracks and not somebody uh, who is acceptable at all to to the middle class culture of Urdu poetry, because that's the thing that is very, um, that's the barrier, that's the biggest barrier, I think that those values, and, and you see those values completely depicted in television dramas that you see, um, you know, being blockbusters in, in Pakistan to to this day, you know, where where really there's very little room for women to do many things because they have to fit this particular type of persona, identity and uh, representation model. So I think the progressives were really um, there to challenge those things. But unfortunately, even within the progressives, you get this factionalism and you get this kind of um, reaction to writing about sexuality because, you know, and it goes back to the relationship with the colonial state and how um, it's it's kind of certain things are seen as taboo and things that break the code, as it were. So they then absorb that internally and they use that as a barrier themselves. So, yeah, I think somebody like Femi Darias did kind of struggle with that, I think, because her collection Bandarida is, is very much written from the heart you know it, it is also it is about well I want to talk about the differences of female bodies and uh, you know she so those were the kinds of questions I think that I was thinking about as I was right. yeah that makes perfect sense definitely I recently had an experience of attending a Mushaira in Pakistan and uh you know, just kind of like observing the way people respond to male poets and female poets and mm -hmm. what their expectations are in terms of poetry from these people mm -hmm. was a very interesting experience. Uh, so you already kind of like brought in uh, Faz Ahmed Faz and Famida Riaz and Kishwar Nahid. Um, so I would like you to talk a little bit about the place and space maybe that is assigned to you know, like maybe Faz Ahmed Faz and Habib Jalib as national public poets. And then if there is any space or room for women as public poets, especially in terms of like nationalism, dissent and current conversations about feminism that are happening in Pakistan. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think it's uh, to talk about Faz and Habib Jalib, you know, it's almost like uh, I need to do another book. Um, it's Fez is a continuous presence. I think with he has a very strong relationship to women's poetry, and also, obviously, Fez's Fez's story um, as a poet and also his story as an activist is is so deeply linked to the story of the left in Pakistan and the closure of the left and the incarceration and prison imprisonment exile you know coming back going away all those kind of things are sort of things that make you know fair such a huge um figure in in pakistan for um as a popular figure as well, I think, as an alternative to the kind of um, 
hierarchies and um, elite politics and authoritarianism that people have come to experience and see as normative of that sort of country. And I think Fares offered an alternative. He offers a, a hope that, so, you know, Ham Dekenge becomes this, this kind of moment for people to really be able to respond to the state, you know, without being incarcerated in a sense, like Fares was, but, but to put it out there. Uh, of course, um, I mean, I think what I would say is that he's um, he and Habib Jalib, of course, who was huge for the uh, women's movement as well, and and especially his you know poetry was recited in in the marches and in the nineteen eighties, kind of where you see the flowering of of the women's movement, and the women's movement becomes a a place through which left politics can be articulated where it can't be articulated in any other spaces because those spaces are being closed down as much as possible. Um, and so, so I think the state has a more complicated relationship with Fez. And of course, you know, if you look at his trajectory and his um, history, I mean, the military state doesn't have a good relationship with Fez at all. Uh, Bhutto's um, period, in Bhutto's period, he, he does kind of have a strong relationship uh, with the state and he instigates these kind of conversations on Pakistani culture and his, and his poetry, you know, stands, um, is because his, he's, the quality of his work is, is so strong and, and the way that he uses, um, brings together the classic and the modern um, idiom together and, and is able to, um, I mean, I think, in fact, going back to a poem like um, Kenya, I think that was the only poem that maybe his publishers felt a little bit worried about, including in in collections of his that were put out in Pakistan, because it does use, you know, a, some Quranic verse to write um, the message that it does. And I think there's always that slight apprehension there that what will the reaction be um, and what might sort of this lead to in terms of, well, anything can happen, can't it? You can have blasphemy, you can have um, all sorts of um, <clears throat> so things that can be pulled out by um, people or political groups who wish to assert their agenda over you know, another sort of more liberal agenda or a left-led agenda. So you have those tensions. And I, I would say, so the state is kind of more comfortable using a poet like Iqbal as its sort of champion of um, Urdu poetry. And you you will kind of see, you know, Iqbal's verse. I mean, when, again, I'll go back to the 80s when I was in Pakistan, you know, there weren't many TV channels. You had uh, PTV. I think you might have, maybe there was another channel called Shalimar TV, which came on very much, uh, a lot later. But, you know, this was the national television through which messaging, national messaging or media messaging was deployed. And you would have Iqbal beamed at you most of the time. You wouldn't have Fez and his verse um, kind of cropping up. Uh, so so I think the way that that's been narrated, 
And that's been, I suppose, incorporated into the narrative, into the national narrative is, is yeah, is, is different. I would say that Fez and Jalib <clears throat> are the poets that people, uh, I would say are kind of people's poets, but they're not necessarily the state's poets. And, and the state has quite a lot of influence as we see on the curriculum, you know, on the, on the national curriculum and things like that. And and all of those aspects that go into the shaping of um, the sensibility of, of young people as they're coming through, you know, how, how do you manage um, ideology? You know, how do you manage ideology? Uh, so it's, I, I think for me, of course, um, it was very, um, and I'm, and I'm, you know, I admire Sadia Tour's work on, on this. Um, she's done quite a lot of, um, uh, her book looks at the progressive kind of contexts and also looks at fairs and um, there's kind of more work that's being, I don't think there's as much work done on fairs as there should be to really um, bring that, bring out his, um, impact and his long-lasting influence in terms of the politics that he um he left behind and in fact um uh, you know it's it's quite interesting that there was uh i mean I, i'm this is completely not something that i talk about in the book but i'm just um reading the rich uh, his book in translation mahmoud darish's book um memory for forgetfulness uh, for teaching and I I'm always drawn to that book you know for many reasons of course it's kind of about the siege of Beirut and it's a very harrowing read as a prose poem but also it mentions fairs within it and and you have this kind of you know meeting of um of these great poets in Beirut at a time when Bears was in exile and, you know, the Arish is in exile, of course, very different types of narratives and stories, and they don't necessarily see eye to eye on certain things. Uh, but there are different, you know, so many, uh, I suppose the point I'm making is there's so many trajectories to Fez's work that impact not just Pakistan, but also, you know, beyond Pakistan on a kind of global scale as well. Um, and, and, you know, his, his poems, have been used in Indian films, in, in diaspora films, as the kind of background score. And it's it's fascinating to kind of study that and to read that and see those are the kind of values, I suppose, that he espouses, those secular values that draw people to the kind of Urdu that they would like to affiliate to as... Um, as a group and as a community that might wish to, you know, say, well, yes, partition happened, but we still have questions about it. And we are in, in an independent nation, but in the post-partition independent nation, we still have questions about the state of freedom. You know, what is this, you know, what was the cost? What has been the cost benefit in terms of what we fought for, what that generation fought for, and and Fares, of course, has his own poem on that, um, on on nineteen forty seven Yedarta which is you know um, quite open in in terms of talking about that split 
relationship of um, leaving behind something, but also moving to something, you know, not quite arriving somewhere new, but not quite having left behind where you were before that, that sort of experience of, of being a migrant, of being a refugee, of being sort of in this flux. So I think that that's very, that speaks to so many people in, in Pakistan and the experience of so many people in Pakistan that he really was a person whose voice has drawn um, people to to his work and and then you know his his kind of influence goes beyond poetry to art and I mean his daughters Salima Hashmi and Niza Hashmi have you know done quite a lot to to kind of ensure that his legacy lives on because we as a nation are quite fickle in in Pakistan you know we might forget um, someone tomorrow if they're not things to remind us of those right. people. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, yeah, I think if, if with, and, and Jalib of course was, uh, yeah, very important and his, uh, in, in his challenging of the military state and, and people are, you know, rebellious and they do speak up against, um, authoritarianism and and sort of speak out for social justice and I think Jalib was sort of marching with women alongside them and fighting the cause as well so those were important years in in the history of Pakistan and and they give us a sense of that work and um alongside them you know Kishwanahi then Femi Daryaz and and they were also activists and I mean Kishwar was certainly talking you know nowadays when you talk to her or actually maybe not just nowadays for many years she says well my poem Ham Gunahgar or is the alternative national anthem of Pakistan and can you imagine, you know, like you suddenly hear Ham Gunagar or them playing instead of boxers. I mean, you know, people would have purple fit. So it's, um, but she has structured herself in that mold that she wanted to, I think, be a, nas- a poet at a national level and to have that stature and to have that um, range, which... Uh, she does, and and she, you know, she acts very much like the poet laureate because she will write about certain things that have happened um, that are quite huge. Like I think there was the um, the Zenup case, for example, and you know, she wrote a poem on on that, and there are many other kind of incidents that have happened that she her poetry will respond to as. Um, as a means of narrating the history of of these things as they're happening. And I think um, in terms of her relationship, I mean, we also see that the women's movement, you know, it, it, it flowered in the 80s. There was a lot of stuff that was going on. And, and before that, I mean, there's a kind of build up to it in the 1960s. And you have these kind of family laws and you have a you sort of, Field Marshal, are you, you know, doing or enacting certain things to appease the liberals? So there are lots of kind of uh, complex narratives that 
lead to then the uh, rise of the women's movement. And then, of course, it sort of goes into abeyance a bit. There are lots of um, NGOs and activists still around generationally, but then you have this this constant, um, I think, messaging about the West and feminism, you know, being a Western concept and a Western construct. And I think that's also something that I wanted to break down in this book and say, well, you know, can we, yes, of course, there are certain, you know, problems within feminist thought itself, and that's been critiqued and criticized and understood in terms of how it may be um, a certain type of feminism that was really coloring the way that it was being written about. But we do have, you know, these very specific histories and narratives that bring to it um, an important flavor and a context. And, And if feminism is about gender justice, then, you know, these women are there absolutely and men participating in gender justice and the cause for gender justice. So I think um, you then with the I think you were referring to the Aurat March in your question. Um, if you come back now, I think Aurat March starts in 2018 and it's it's you know, done sort of somewhat differently or imagined somewhat differently to the women's movement that was of the 1980s, you know, seen in a more egalitarian fashion, a lot less kind of in led by certain individuals, but more of a group ethos. But it also has uh, quite um, different aims and objectives, some which are similar, but also about inclusivity, about um, awareness, about... in uh, so you know, sexualities and and lots of things that fall under its umbrella. And then the Aurat March itself, I think, has became such a big, uh, well, I think it was made into such a big sort of hoo-ha by the media as well to use it as a means of saying to women, ah, look, we were right after all, you know, you're all just kind of mimicking the West in terms of rights, you know, because rights is not something it's it's an interesting thing isn't it that rights suddenly becomes just i mean yeah we can we can talk about modernity and we can talk about the history of rights and where it comes from and citizenship and but you are you know within the construct of a nation so therefore rights are going to come into it you know at that point you can't say well actually rights are too you know when it comes to women's rights that's you you're sort of being too western at this point it doesn't work like that so i think um what the Aurat marches did, which was very brave, and unfortunately they faced death threats and all sorts of really complex scenarios, was take to the streets with their marches and use placards and use um, Urdu language to write messages that obviously, you know, um, hit, um, well, people in different ways or in ways that some more conservative elements in Pakistani society didn't respond well to. So the the thing, you know, there were things like obviously very simple things like Kana Khud Garam Karlo and, um, you know, don't send me dick pics and things like that. Um, and, and, you know, and it's also ultimately it's about the safety of women being able to go to work and not being harassed and not being... Um, confronted with sexual um, so it, it's kind of connected to me too as well 
And um, Gishwa Nahid's relationship to that has been interesting because, of course, she's she's a big figure and she's some someone who the new generation of feminists look up to. But of course, she's also an Urdu poet, so she has a like long relationship with the language and the way that she's thought about it and the way that she's had to write in it or she's she's just, you know, like whatever her sensibilities are. So she said that she didn't think that Urdu was um, ready for this type of language that was being used in the placards. And I think that sort of didn't sit go down well with the younger feminists. And, and you know, fair enough, you have your own choices and you have your own opinions and we can agree to disagree. But then we have this problem as well within our, within the kind of, I think, probably movement because there's so much outside pressure from the media, like, and from um, elements, rogue elements, you might call them, or uh, the, um, parties that wish to use this as a means to elevate their own political aspirations. You know, it's very convenient, isn't it? Use use the Women's March as a means to do that. Uh, so it becomes hard, I think, for people to have disagreements then within the movement itself. So to have, so that, that you know, is an intergenerational disagreement between feminists to say, well, one group thinks this way, another group thinks that's way, that way. And I think that's quite a normal thing, isn't it? To have intergenerational differences and disagreements as you go across different periods and times. Um, but I think we we that is a hard thing to do um, in, in, in feminism itself. You know, it, it's so contentious, even globally, you know, in, in the West as well. People yeah. feel under pressure when it's it's kind of suddenly seen, well, am I being ideological if I say I'm a feminist? <clears throat> or, um, you know, am I being sort of attached to some agenda or something? It's not seen in a more open way sometimes. And that's what makes people, uh, what makes people react to it in, in, I think, complicated ways. And I do try in this book to, I suppose I'm, I'm kind of influenced by intersectionality, although I don't sort of use the theory so much because I didn't have the space in the book to look at the kind of um, racial question as much, although I think it's sort of embedded in, in the argument. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, that's a very long-winded answer to your question, I hope, um, in, in terms of where I think those things have happened. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for a comprehensive answer. I, I think you are right, like this international um, intergenerational divide between feminists has definitely occurred in different countries globally like it's not only the case in Pakistan and uh, you are true also in saying that people especially like people who have this kind of like established role or these assigned public expectations like from people like Femi Darias as you spoke about her right then mm -hmm. you have to kind of like find a way where you can balance the shifting ideologies, the new ideas that are coming in, but also kind of like find a way to um, take the tradition and mm -hmm. maybe the traditional expectations of you. 
um, along the lines. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for talking to me about the book. It's been so wonderful. I hope more people read the book. And uh, this has really made a significant contribution to the Pakistani Urdu writing. Thanks once again. Um, I'm Ikrash Gupta Chima, your host for the New Books Network in Gender Studies. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you.